Good morning again. It's good to see you all, especially those of you who arrived since last time I was standing up here uh, a few minutes ago. So we get the opportunity and privilege once again to study the scripture together and get the privilege to try to lead you through what God has taught me in it the past several days um, as we continue our series in Zechariah. So I'm going to read the, the two texts that are together for this week, and then pray, and then dive in together. Uh, so we are in chapter 2, all of it. So Zechariah 2, 1 through 13. That is the third vision of the visions, and that is paired with the sixth vision, which is chapter 5, 1 through 4. And I'll talk more about that pairing again in a second as a reminder, but for now, if you will stand, I will read through these two texts as we get started. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its height, uh, length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. And said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And then to chapter 5. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. This is the word of the Lord. God, thank you for the opportunity once more to be taught by you, to be led by your spirit. We pray that the words I say would be only that, tools for you to use. That you would be at work in our hearts this morning to speak the words of God, not just the words of some guy standing on a stage. We are not here to be entertained. We're not here to provide grades on the greatest speaker in all the land. We're here to hear from you. And so we pray that you would do that, that you would speak to me, that you would speak to all of us as we look at Zechariah together, as we look at the message that you have there for the people of Israel that has lasting message all throughout history for your people and for us today. 
Spirit, we pray that you would be at work in each of our hearts individually in the ways that we need to hear this for conviction, for encouragement, for rebuke, for exhortation, for joy. Give us what each of us needs in order to serve you and be more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is the best defense? Defense for what? Well, defense for anything. Pick your, take your pick. What is the best defense? What is the best argument? What is the best provision? We take lots of time in life striving for these things. Safety, defense, guardrails, provision, arguments of, of our own rightness or someone else's rightness. Although more recently, it often turns into someone else's idiocy, which thereby proves my rightness on social media, so I can just tell them they're dumb and then everyone will know that I must be smart. Military might, striving along, hoping for the best. What is it that actually is the best option in all these things? We turn to a text in Zechariah that through these visions and through the words that God has given us, he wants us to see very clearly that there is a total lack of need to hope in ourselves in these things. I want to review briefly just at what we've seen so far. The, the very first chunk of Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, basically said, hey, you need to repent. I've told your fathers you need to repent. And they did. This is a pretty cool response, given that in most of the prophets, it was like, repent, repent, and like, forget you. And then eventually God brought judgment. In this case, in Zechariah, he's speaking to a people who are already post-exile, who have already started the return to the, the area, to the land. And he says, you need to repent. And they say, we will. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and so they did. And then Zechariah, he's in a context with a people who are in a very large place of uncertainty. They've just returned to this land. It's not stable and secure by human standards at all. They're just barely working on rebuilding walls and this sort of thing. The temple's not fully built, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, Zechariah has one of the craziest nights that we see recorded in scripture with these visions, just one after another after another, best we can tell. Don't know if he slept that night or not, but he had a lot of message that God gave to him to deliver to the people. A people ingrained in uncertainty but trying to repent and do what's right not knowing their next steps. And as is very common in Hebrew thought, these visions end up getting presented in this chiastic structure, as David has talked about multiple times. And just in case it hasn't settled in for anyone yet, I'll reinforce what that means. Chiastic comes from the Greek letter key, or looks like an X to us. And so if you take that X and you take just the one half, now we've got looks like a greater than sign, if it's, you know, Whatever it's eating towards is the higher side, right? That's what we teach our kids in school. So <laughs> if it's eating towards me, it means it looks like a greater side. This is the chiastic structure. The point is, the first part of the, of the text we're looking at and the last part are paired. And then the next two and the next two and the next two, two reach the center. And the center is the main point. So whereas in the United States and Western culture in general, we often have you know, three points in a poem or four points or five or whatever. And we talk about uh, inductive leading people toward the point versus deduct and all this kind of stuff. We, we generally build toward our points. Or maybe sometimes we make the point at the very start and then unwrap it from there. But most of the time, we build toward our main point. 
in the Hebrew mind, very, very often, you go to the point and then away from it. So my own brain, I've often thought of this as a round trip, like a vacation. You go somewhere and you enjoy the way there and you enjoy the thing itself, and then you're driving home for 10 hours or 24 hours or whatever, depending on how far away you went, or you're flying home, and you're still remembering the trip. You're still impacted by the trip. You're still impacted by the things you did. You're, oh, I remember that thing, it was a cool thing. Or you're intentionally asking your kids, hey, what was your favorite part? And then they tell you their favorite part, and you're distraught to discover it was just the hot dogs that you had in the gas station on the way down there, right? Like, but it's the vacation, and it doesn't end when you get to the main point. It continues until you get all the way home. So when you're thinking chiasm, think in that regard. Like you're, we're actually heading toward the main point and then back away from it and being impacted by it again. This is why, as we've presented these visions, the determination was made to kind of pair the visions together as they're lined up in the chiasm, since we're not just doing all eight at once. So vision one and eight had this theme of peace, of real peace, not just the fake peace the nations were claiming, but God restoring real peace. Visions two and seven had this theme of dealing with sin, uh, as David looked at with us last week. And both calling sin what it is and also the fact that God's going to get rid of sin. He's getting the, the Babylon out of the people and sending it back to Babylon. So then visions three and six that we're going to look at today have themes of the city, God's presence, the people of God. That all leads us to the next couple of weeks. We'll look at uh, visions four and five in chapter three and four, respectively, where we see the king and the priest, the priest and the king, the king-priest. And as these two are fused together, we see very easily this pointer to Jesus who fulfills those two roles. But even in that, even, even before seeing it as Jesus, the people of God would have seen, okay, the priest, the king, these roles that God has called are being restored as the hope that we're looking at. So in all of these things, as we look at the text today, we've got to keep that in mind. What we're actually headed to is not just these two visions, we're headed to the point that we're going to hit the next two weeks and we're going to develop looking at the priest and the king as the final hope of all of these things. So today, we see a few different things related to God's presence. And therefore, the, the title that I, I threw on this sermon was The Blessings of Divine Presence. Because more than, more than anything, as I was studying these two chunks, these two visions together, that was what was striking as it stands out in the midst of it. Yeah, it's looking at the city of Jerusalem, it's looking at the people of God, and these other things, but God's saying, I will be there. And that has impact for everyone. So first of all, as we look at this, the first thing we see is that God's presence rescues and protects his people. So as we look at this first vision, Zechariah lifts up his eyes and he sees this guy with a measuring line. Now, what's he going to go do? He's going to head along to Jerusalem with this measuring line, and he's going to get the dimensions of Jerusalem. Now, why would he want the dimensions of Jerusalem? Jerusalem was a city. People were currently living there. Some other people might come, etc. What did you do with cities in ancient times? You did something that we don't do today. Anywhere. The only places that still have this now are places that had it thousands of years ago and it's been preserved. You put walls around the city. Why did you put walls around the city? Well, because as anyone who has played Age of Empires knows, when you have walls around the city, it's a lot harder to get in with the opponent's military and crush your city. It means they have to tear down your walls first before they can get in and plunder your city. Now we say, yeah, right. We've got jet planes and bombers, and yeah, that's exactly why we don't have walls around cities anymore. 
They're pointless now. But we need to realize in this day and time, before the onset of big, huge machinery that could fly over a city and drop a bomb, and before long-range weaponry of the same sort that we have these days, walls were a huge, huge source of security. We could better compare it if we were just to to imagine, yeah, have your home with no walls, and then go on a vacation, and see how much security you feel that your home has at that point. Like, just leave it with columns. You know, tear down all of the, the walls on the side, the insulation, have support columns so it's strong enough to stand, no walls. Call that your home. How does that feel? Similar to having a city without walls. So he's going to measure the city. They're going to be able to structure what this city is going to be because Jerusalem is being restored. But then we reach something very counterintuitive. Again, because walls were such a safety thing, the angel says, tell them to stop. <laughs> I'm going to go measure this. What we need to do? What? I, stop? What do you mean stop? Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. So there's the first thing. It's going to be so many people and so much livestock that it's just going to burst at the seams if you make walls. Oh, we'll make them bigger. Well, nope, it's going to be villages without walls. But what are we going to do for safety? What are we going to do for security? Well, you're not going to trust in yourself. Because verse 5, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So no walls. It's it's almost like saying, yeah, you don't need a military. You're just going to exist. You're going to live. You're not going to have extra safety measures. You're not going to depend on these things that are structures that men have established for security, for confidence. You won't need them. It's a shocking thing to claim. It shatters paradigms of existence that had been in place for hundreds of years. And to consider it for ourselves would shatter various paradigms of how we think, too. If we were really to say, you don't need health care, you don't need insurance. You don't need school. You don't need walls in your house. You don't need savings in your bank account. Hey, you don't need a job. You know, just any number of things that we might find confidence or safety or security. You don't need locks on your car. You don't need locks on your house, right? <laughs> Start piling them up. You don't need to carry a gun. Some people say, no, I need that. Other people would say, I don't care. I don't have one anyway. Like, but like all these different things, and there's many more we could list, This is what God's saying to them. It's that dramatic to say, you don't need walls. I will be like a wall of fire around you. If God were to say, set aside your savings, I will be like a piggy bank among you. If you were to say, set aside your insurance, I will care for you and provide in the time of need. And the crazy thing is, in this call to a lack of walls for the people, there is actually a beautiful call to freedom. Where when we have structures of safety, they are useful, part one. (laughs) This doesn't mean go tear all the locks off your cars. That's not the application of this text. They are useful, but they also are a regular reminder of the evil around us a regular reminder of the insecurity we face and feel. Perhaps there's no realm 
more dramatic than that, for me at least, than uh, computer cybersecurity, where as I try to teach people about it at times that are my customers or my friends or family or whatever, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is such an annoying hassle to do all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, I agree. It is. It's annoying. It's a hassle. It's extra steps of protection. And it's because there's a lot of bad actors out there. <laughs> and with, with my customers, I refrain from saying, yeah, people are sinful. And <laughs> but that's, that's the reality, is that every extra password or every step of two-factor or four-factor authentication you might have to log into your bank or every fraud alert or every credit card block because you're spending on something you don't normally spend because you don't normally buy a Snickers from the gas station, you don't normally buy a hot dog. All of those things are reminders this world's broken. The reminders, I don't totally feel safe. The reminders, yeah, if I don't have this, someone might steal my entire identity might take all the money out of my bank account, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you imagine a world without walls, a city without walls, because you're so free in the love of God. You're so free in the provision that God gives, in the protection that God gives, that you can just live. And it's not because there's literally no one to fear. It's because God is so great that he is your protection and he takes care of all of the enemies. And in an eternal, ultimate sense, when this is really fulfilled, there will be no enemies. When we look to eternity, it'll be a world without walls because God has been the protection and has led us to the place of safety permanently. But this is the thing that he's saying to them. It's not just, oh yeah, you don't need to measure it. No, he's saying, he's, he's shattering with their expectations with a really happy message. Like, you're not going to need those walls. I'm going to take care of you. This is what it's going to be like. And they still built walls later, and, you know, were they not trusting, or was that just practical, and he's speaking symbolically here? It kind of doesn't matter in some ways, because the impact of what he's saying in this message is the same. Because he says, Jerusalem will be like villages without walls. That's how powerful I will be among you. And because ultimately this claim will be fulfilled in its fullness in eternity. So though Jerusalem now, and Jerusalem for hundreds of years, has still had some walls, though they still feel the impact of sin, though God's people everywhere still feel it, there is that day coming. So this text has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled more fully still in the future. This is also a little bit of an odd picture because God says you're going to have a village without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock. How many people are actually in Jerusalem at this time? <laughs> it's like this little meager remnant of people who came back from exile by contrast to even those who used to live there. So it's like if we're saying, yeah, I know there's no one in Greenville right now. There's only about 3,000 people living in the city of Greenville, but Greenville's not going to need to have walls anymore. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? We barely even fill a city block. There is in this claim a huge promise of what is to come. And there, it leads directly into what we see in verse 6 and 7, where God's calling the people and saying, return, like, up, up, flee from the north, come back. Return to the city of Jerusalem. It is time. I'm restoring you. I'm redeeming you. So he protects his people, the city without walls. He rescues his people. He's calling them back. He's saying, the one who has plundered you has touched the apple of my eye. I will bring you back. I will restore you. 
in verse 6 and 7. Escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Babylon is where they were in exile. He's saying, come back from that. It's time to leave. I've got your, your place again is ready. You can return. I will protect you. And then when we look at the other half of that section, after, so we skip verse 9 for a second. Verse 10, 11, 12. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Well, that's going to expand the people of God a lot. Because now it's not just you, it's many nations shall come and join themselves to the Lord. So all those who you once thought were your enemies around, who you were concerned about, well, now they're joining in. Now they're part of the people of God. Now they're becoming part of this multitude of people and cattle that can expand the walls and overflow the walls and burst things at the seams because there's so many flooding in to be the people of God and to follow him. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. God is your source and strength and shield and everything. He is your rescuer. God's presence rescues and protects his people. But I skip chapter, or verse nine on purpose. The second point that we have to recognize here, and this theme will tie in very closely with the second vision, is that God's presence punishes his enemies. So because God is in your midst, there is protection. Because God is in your midst, there is rescue. Because God is in your midst, you have the safety you otherwise could not get on your own. Self-dependence will never accomplish what just a little bit of the presence of God can do. But also because God is in your midst, his enemies are called to account. Also because God is in the midst, he says in verse 8 and 9, Thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. So what's he say? That this isn't even what God said yet, but he's giving a commentary on it. To the nations who plundered you, Babylon, Assyria, others, right, came, attacked the people of Israel, plundered them. And it says, people of God, he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. He loves you. He's caring for you. He's watching for you. And yes, he lets you be carried away into exile. But he is not indifferent to your need. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And so God says in verse 9, Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So the ones who plundered you shall become plunder. The ones who were doing the attacking shall be attacked. The ones who were stealing shall have their goods taken away. They shall become plunder for those who serve them. Who served them? Israel (laughs) and others who were brought into captivity by them as they were conquering around the lands. These who have perpetuated wickedness, these who have taken over and beaten you down and oppressed you over the years, things we turn on their head when God comes and establishes his presence and his rule, when he brings justice to the situation. This actually is the the capstone thought of another smaller chiasm within this text. So again, Hebrews thought in chiasm a lot. And I believe that we have a thematic chiasm in this text where at the start you have the man measuring Jerusalem. At the end in verse 12, you have the Lord saying he will inherit Judah as his portion and again choose Jerusalem. So this focus on Jerusalem. Then you have in verse 5, 
matched with verse 11 to 12, God's presence in the city in verse 5. I will be to her a wall of fire all around. I will be the glory in her midst. God is right there. Verse 11 and 12, God's saying, I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion. So again, God in the midst. God's right there. Third, the next step inward is verse 6 and 7, matched with verse 10 through 11. God's people returning to the city, God's people rejoicing, and the nations joining and turning to the city. So you have people coming back to the place of God, which leaves us at verse 9 in the center here, God's enemies are destroyed that the key point of this vision is that God is bringing justice. So as we look at like, hey, rejoice and come back and whatever because I am bringing justice. The people could say, well, why? Well, how? Why would we come back? Why would we be confident? Because justice is coming. What about all those people? I'm bringing justice to them. What about all the difficulties we have from the justice is coming? That is the theme to which all this points to at the start of the vision and comes out from afterwards that God is going to make all things right. His presence will punish his enemies in this reversal of fortunes and there is no place for the wicked to hide. There's no place within God's presence being there that the wicked will say, oh, he doesn't see me. Now you have these times when we watch in, in movies and the bad guy's there and he's got all his minions and then the good guys come and they, they're getting the minions and the bad guy sneaks out the back door. You're like, oh man, he's going to come back in the next film. That's not going to happen when God's presence is there. <laughs> Someone tries to sneak out the back door, God's like, get over here. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. Justice has come. Justice is being meted out. And God associates himself with his people so closely. He says, you're the apple of my eye. He who touches you touches me. You can think even of in the New Testament when Paul's persecuting the church and Jesus stops him on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people, the apostles whom I've sent out to get, proclaim this good news all around the area? Why are you persecuting these disciples who faithfully served me and went out at Pentecost and spoke in tongues and did amazing things that you can't even explain? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus, just like, just like God says to his people here in Zechariah, Jesus says the same kind of thing. All throughout history, God's people are bound to him, and he is bound to them. God loves you, God loves us, and binds himself to us as his people for our good, for his glory. So this leads us to verse 13, which I think is not only the culmination of this first vision, but a, a great theme verse for this entire message. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. We've got this chiastic thought saying God's bringing justice, and the reflection on it is be silent, everyone before him. He is up and he is coming. And I think I was looking up in the, uh, in the original Southern and I think this starts with y'all hush. Yo mama's here. Something like that. Um, I don't know if I totally got it right, but think of, think of all these scenarios that we have. You could list off different ones, but the one I'm thinking of is the time when the siblings and cousins are all sleeping together. Not that I ever did this at all, obviously, but at the Christmas gathering or whatever, and they're staying up way too late, and they keep jattering, jabbering and chattering, and goofing off, and probably a couple of them are being mean to some others, and they're feeling a little oppressed, and, you know, because you have power dynamics that occur among kids. This, this never happened to you. Okay, it was totally with me. And 
Then what happens? Suddenly some light enters the room because the door opens. And at that moment, everyone is silent. (gasps) Dad just came in. A couple people are faking like they're asleep. Some others are just wide-eyed because the light's already shining on them. They can't sneak away. Those who were feeling oppressed a minute ago because Johnny was teasing them are now feeling hopeful, but they're silent too because they got nothing to say because Dad's here. I don't need to defend myself anymore. Dad's here. Those who were just making fun, the Johnnies who were teasing, are very silent and scared because Dad's here and now I'm going to get punished. Be silent, all the earth, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Roused himself here, not that he was sleeping and not paying attention, but that he was waiting for the appropriate time. The time has come, and now he said, All right, it's time. We're, let's do business. You can think of the way that when you're sitting in the courtroom, or when you've seen people sitting in a courtroom on TV, or some other scenario, when you've imagined to yourself in your mind what a courtroom might be like. And you have everyone talking and the news people looking for interviews and trying to find scoops and the people up front are jabbering amongst themselves and the jury is over here deliberating what they think about how the defendant looks and how the prosecution looks. And they're not supposed to do that, but they can't help it. Meanwhile, the defendant's talking to his lawyer like, how are you going to get me out of this? And the prosecution's talking to themselves like, how are we going to get this person in trouble? Everyone's doing all their stuff. And then someone says, all rise. And the entire courtroom goes silent and everyone stands up because the time has come and the judge is entering. So whether it's daddy in the late night opening the door on the troublesome kids or whether it's the judge coming into the courtroom, in this case we have the divine judge coming into the courtroom of the earth and all must be silent before him. Those who are oppressed people of God don't need to speak for themselves because he speaks for them. The one who touches you touches me. You are the apple of my eye and those who have attacked the people of God, have no defense they can give. They've been seen in every action they've taken. He knows their heart, not just their actions, and he knows what's going on, and he brings beautiful justice. So be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Or perhaps we'd say something for ourselves like, stand in awe, for the Lord of hosts has come, if that feels a little more modern to you. But... I was reading over this, I was like, man, I kind of want to rephrase this verse to be a little more like today, but I don't know how. It feels quite perfect. (laughs) Be silent, everyone, for God has roused himself. The time has come, he is here. Uh, A guy named Ralph Smith, a commentator, noted that the word, or this this phrase, awake, is frequently used in the Psalms in a worship-type setting and other places, and it means that Yahweh is about to act on behalf of his people in his name. That's when it's commonly brought up. So the same kind of theme there. Additionally, he said something that I thought was just a really great, great quote, summary of this. The church's greatest defense is still God's presence around her and his glory within her. Which I think is well worthy of our reflection as we think on this first vision and that summary point. And then we turn to the second vision. Before we turn to the second vision, remember what we're about to look at in the next couple weeks, the hinge of this entire big picture message is the priest and king. The thing that this is still looking to, because there's, there's no completion with this yet. It's like, okay, well, 
How are you going to make all these things right, God? How are you going to say that you're going to stand for your people who also are still sinful? When you say you're going to stand against your enemies, the one who touches you touches me, but your people have touched each other with evil as well. So who is actually deserving of this rescue that you're talking about? We don't have a final solution yet until the next couple weeks when we're looking at God says, I will purify you. I will provide the priest. I'll provide the king who will be there to make things right and to set things in order. So we have to think on that even as we turn to the next vision as well because that's the hinge on which this turns. That's the fulfillment of these things. Without that gospel, this hope of protection and rescue is not complete. As Romans says, God sent Jesus so he could be just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus because he couldn't be just if he didn't bring that punishment. That's why Jesus as a substitute was so critical And he couldn't be the justifier if he didn't bring the punishment on someone besides the people. (laughs) And so Jesus came to take that all for us, which makes this message possible. So turn back from that now. That's where we're really heading. But now we go back to this other vision. And now we get to reflect on that too. So third, God's presence purifies his city. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So Zechariah looks up again and he sees a flying scroll. And some of you are like thinking back to Aladdin. You're like flying carpet, super cool. Can take us out of the Cave of Wonders and fly all over Arabia. And it's not a carpet. So it's not quite the same. It's a scroll. But it's flying, which is weird because scrolls don't fly normally. So again, one of the craziest nights people would ever have, Zechariah is right in the middle of it. He's like, I'm seeing horses, I'm seeing flying scrolls, what's going on here? Right? So he sees a flying scroll, and it's really noteworthy at the start here that we don't gloss over. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Cubits is not a measurement that we use in the past year at North America. And so we read that and we just go, okay, it's some measurement, whatever, like mentally. Unless you've been recently studying your cubit conversions, you aren't going to read this and go, oh, okay, I know how big that is. So how big is 20 cubits by 10 cubits? It's actually rather large. It's like the whole front porch of Solomon's temple. It's like the holy place of the temple, even more specifically. Or the tabernacle, sorry. So the holy place of the tabernacle was the same size as what this flying scroll is. I think there's some significance there in that God is saying, because scrolls were any length, right? And they weren't generally, you had to hold them, (laughs) so they're not as big as a porch. You're not holding like some big slab of cement. Like, okay, everybody. So he's intentionally making this a large scroll. It can be seen. It's flying through the air. Everyone can see and hear and be cursed by, as it says, the curses that are written on it. But it's also the same size as the holy place. Like as if it's saying this is God's presence. Like the holy place is where God came to dwell among his people in the tabernacle, right? And so from God's presence is coming this scroll, seems to be part of the implication of that size. Zechariah sees it, and his, his interpreting angel says, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. And then two examples are listed, stealing and lying. But these two are listed kind of as a summary of those who perpetuate sin, those who persist in their sin. It's not saying the only people who will be punished are the thieves and the liars and everyone else is fine. Uh, adulterers can do their thing, that's fine. The greedy can do their thing. It's not saying that. It's saying, here's a couple examples of what we're talking about. The thieves, the liars, they will be punished. 
and they will be cast out. This curse will enter their home and consume it, both timber and stones. If your home's been consumed, you have nowhere to live. You have nowhere within this city to be. This villages without walls will have no place for you if your home is gone. So God's presence is purifying the city. This is, again, a very similar theme to that core point from the previous vision, that God's justice is coming against those who do evil. We see the two paired together. God does not come just to affirm us as we are. He's not come to say, hey, all right, you come along and just do whatever you want. I'm going to say you're cool. That's, that's the lie of North American culture these days, of perhaps the world as a whole. Like, whatever you are is affirmation worthy, you should just stay that way. Be true to you, find your heart, follow your heart. It might be somewhere out in the woods, in the desert, that you need to go find yourself for a while. But once you find your heart, stay true to that. Right? That is the gospel in many ways of our culture and of our world. And it is not the gospel of God. He comes, yes, he comes to you where you are, but he doesn't leave you there. He comes to you where you are and he says, I want to refine you into the image of Jesus. I want to make you holy to be part of my people in a way that is honoring to me. So we see this flying scroll and for those who are abject enemies of God, they will have no place. And for those who have these sins in their hearts, just as we see in the next text, literally next vision that David looked at next week, the, or sorry, he looked at last week, um, the woman in the basket, the wickedness being carried out to Babylon, right? So we see this one where it says there's curses coming on those who lie, those who steal. And then we also see the next text right after, if we're doing that round trip as a whole together, because we might go, well, there's curses on me too then, because I've lied, I've stolen. And that next one we see, well, God can take away your sin. So yes, there is a curse on all who do wickedness and all who do evil. And yet, because of the priest king, because of God's good work, the sin in the basket's being carried away. So he is purifying his people. He's purifying his city from those who persist in wickedness. He's creating a space that is actually holy unto the Lord. He also, just as he is not here to leave us where we are, he's not here to stand idly by while evil reigns. There is a time coming. There is a time of justice. There is a time of righteousness that God will say, enough is enough. My city, my place shall be cleansed. And we see as we look forward farther into scripture that he's no longer talking about just the city. (laughs) The the bounds of Jerusalem keep expanding. Whether that's here in this text where it says you're not going to have walls anymore or whether that's by the time we get to Revelation where it's like, yeah, it's the whole world, by the way. All of creation is being refined to be my place again. I'm staking my claim to the entirety of existence and all of evil is out. That's that's the message that God is giving us by the time we get to the end of scripture. As he continues to say, more and more is going to be the hope of all the people. We see these connections to, to stuff like Revelation 21 and 22 that talks about this massive city that really can't be measured and it's the, the measurements that are given are given this symbolic picture of hugeness. <laughs> that's so large and it's this cube and it's grand and it, God's coming to rest with his people. The goal of all scripture is what we see in the very beginning of, of the Bible. God's presence with his people in his place. And from the first time that sin wrecked that until the time when God makes it new, 
that is still the trajectory we're aiming back to. God's people with him in his place eternally. And God has taken us through a, a long and hard history, and we don't know how much longer it goes until that day. But when that day comes, we will indeed be a place without walls. And he will permanently be the only glory in our midst. And we will not need or feel the need or sinfully desire the need to establish a different glory in our midst. So where do we lack hope for justice? When we look at a text like this, where, where in our lives are we feeling there is no justice? There is never going to be anything made right. Maybe we're looking as broadly as, as major cultural and worldwide issues like human trafficking. Maybe we're looking as close as like an injustice done at work. Credit stolen for a project we worked hard on. Blame falsely given to me instead of my sibling for something that was done wrong at home. Where are these injustices that we feel? We are told here that the Lord of hosts will bring justice at the right time. And even amongst all the mistakes that we have, where we don't understand the parent doesn't see who really did it, or amongst the sin that we have, where we are bringing injustice because of oppression and evil that's in the world, even amongst all the things that we see that where we need racial reconciliation, where we need demographic economic reconciliation, like all these things that we see the brokenness, just like Ecclesiastes talks about. Like when there's people of power, there's going to be oppression at various times, and we're going to see these things and be distressed by them. We see here the promise that remains that God will make all things right in his time. He will rouse himself when the time is right. He is, he is not doing that right now in the same sense. And we see in 2 Corinthians and in 2 Peter, among other places, he's doing that from patience. Behold, these are the days of salvation, says the Lord in 2 Corinthians. Or in 2 Peter that he's saying he's giving time that more be saved. So he knows exactly what he's doing and he's being patient to rescue. But when the time comes, he's going to step into that cosmic courtroom and all will be called to account. All will be made right. And those who have persisted in wickedness will be undone and he will establish good forever. But also as we think on, on a bigger justice level, thinking smaller on, on the safety and provision level, what, what pointless defenses are we raising? What things are we clinging to for safety and security that, that are taking the place of God? What things that may be good things or helpful things in human structures have instead become idols in our hearts? Whether that's a bank account or, or a certain job or insurance or family structures or whatever it might be, where do we need instead to be silent and trust God in his timing? Where are the times that we want to speak up and defend ourselves that we need to just shut up and let God take up our defense when the time is right? What are the self-dependent paradigms that we need God to shatter for us? Where we would say, I must have walls, and he would say, no, 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 you'll have a life without walls. I really want to encourage you to, to pray about that. Where can God grant you greater freedom in life by trusting him for things that otherwise you're trying to depend on yourself for right now? What are the, what are the things that you're t carrying out your measuring line and the angel's saying, no, no, come back, because God will be your protection. God will be your rescue. He will be the fire around you and the glory in your midst. 
These things are different for various people at different times because we have different struggles in accordance with the personalities that God has given us. <laughs> and some of us need to repent of our confidence and some of us need to repent of our lack of confidence in him. And some of us need to repent of our trust in money and some of us need to, like we're in a great spot with regard to money, we need to repent of something else, our trust in our social clout or something like that. But I think all of us can, can associate with this call to these self-dependent defenses that we try to raise knowing the right thing at all times, perhaps. Maybe we struggle intellectually with knowing all the right answers or, or knowing the right social cues or defending the right things. We, our society certainly has struggled for years now with... Um, <laughs> the term I just forgot, but... Uh, virtue signaling, there you go. is a term we've given to it, where it's like I'm going to say the right thing so people know that I stand for the right stuff so I look good. We do it, whether it's among progressive liberal culture or conservative culture. We all have different ways that at times we struggle with that because we want people to know we're, we're in the right crowd, we're safe enough. And where do we need to stop depending on virtue signaling and instead depend on God who gives the only virtue that actually matters? So there's, there's just so many directions that the Spirit would t- could take this and so I pray that he does in each of our lives to help to refine us into the image of Jesus because because God is our hope. God is the one bringing justice, and we get to look forward to that. And we get to release so many other things and just live in the joy of freedom in his care as we continue through life. So let's pray together, and we have the opportunity to sing some more of his goodness and glory uh, as we continue through our Sunday. God, thank you that you have worked in so many ways throughout the course of history that you remind us of, just as the psalm was saying earlier. Thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you associate yourself with us. You bind yourself to us so that the one who reaches out and touches your people with evil has touched you too. That there is a day coming when you will plunder the plunderers, when you will reverse the fortunes of the wicked, when you will make all things new and all things right. Thank you that we can trust in you to be the protection when we feel none other. Thank you that we can trust in you to be the protection that we don't need a different one. I pray that you would help us in all of our situations in life to look to you first. That other tools of security and protection would come only as part of fleshing out what you have given. That none of the blessings you've given or the possibilities you've given would become idols that wrap around our hearts, but instead they would be in their proper place. Tools that lead us to give gratefulness to you, to live in freedom before you, to know that even if one of the tools of safety or or security goes away, it was only ever something you provided anyway. We were always hoping in you in the first place. Help us to love one another well and the community around us well with this truth that you have left today to be the day of salvation, but that there is a day of judgment coming when you'll set all things right. That is both our hope and, and the sinner's fear. Your presence is amazing. Your presence among us to care for us and to rescue us, to make all things right. We look for your presence. We long for your presence. 
We pray that you'd be with us in our fears and in our trials and sorrows. We pray that you'd be with us in our joys, that our successes and accomplishments would never make us look to ourselves as the hope, but we would see you right there with us and, and praise you and thank you that our fears and trials would never cause us distress as if there is no hope, but instead that we would look right to you and the help that you provide in the midst of the trial. And that when we are tempted to be dependent on ourself, the arguments we can provide, the money we can provide, whatever it might be, when we are dependent or when we are tempted to be independent of all, we would instead be dependent on you. We would instead be trusting in you and looking to you. Thank you for your love and care for us in all these things and help us now to praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.